maintain speed if not anything increase boat speed if you do it really well now there's a cost to that give you an idea say you put the blade in the water you drive it through really well and if we're all equal we drive through the same speed we produce the same amount of force we move the boat the same distance we exit the blade out of the water we're all as good as each other taking the blade out of the out of the release out of the finish you have one crew spins the hands away pops the knees up rocks over really quickly and gets set onto the feet and then slows down. You have another crew that allows their hands to sort of flow around the back appropriately, I suppose, without forcing their hands away. Stretch off the back, soft knee break. And then once they've broken the knees, they gradually allow the seats, wheels on the seat, to gradually increase rolling speed into the front. Stop it there. If both crews did the same thing, you would have a different effect on boat speed. Well, in case you're wondering, you are actually listening to The Bro Show. We started there with an uh, excerpt from Drew Ginn from um, one of his podcasts, uh, which he did a number of years ago, called uh, Will It Make the Boat Go Faster? And we thought it'd be interesting today to actually talk to uh, a little bit around some of that sort of stuff. So, g'day Rodney, how are we going? Good, BT. How are you, mate? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. It's good to be uh, back on The Bro Show again and uh, getting on with some stuff. So, will it make the boat go faster? It's a fascinating uh, piece of work from Drewy. Um, we've had a bit of a chat through it, and part of what we wanted to tackle today was not necessarily will it make the boat go faster, not necessarily coming up with the ultimate way of making the boat go faster, but examining some of the ideas here and thinking about, well, how could it make the boat go faster? What would be the mechanics around the different styles, particularly of recovery, and what are the various impacts those styles might have on the boat? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm quite interested to get into this. Should be good. Yeah, it's going to be a bit of a struggle for you, mate. So I bought your pillow because it's all rowing oh, and not great. a lot of necessary sports science. So you can have a bit of a snooze and you might good. be boring. hovering over the boring button a little bit. But uh, we, should get, we should get some good stuff covered here today. Yeah, well, I keep telling you it's all about physiology and how much power you can produce. So I don't know what any of this stuff is going to be about, but <laughs> you keep on telling me what happens when the blade's not in the water is important too. So yeah. I'm, I'm willing to listen. Let's go. All right. Very good. All right. So what we're going to do is to listen to a few excerpts from the Will It Make The Boat Go Faster um, stuff that Drewy's done and then have a little bit of a chat on the implications of that down the track. So we'll start off with the, uh, the next little excerpt. First crew I mentioned, the effect that they would have once they've released the blades out of the water is an increase in boat speed as soon as the body brake rocks over and as soon as the knees pop up quickly. You'd have an increase in boat speed right there. Not as high of an increase in speed as the drive, but still pretty substantial. But there's a cost. You increase boat speed there, you now have the weight on your feet, you now have the body set over, you now have the stern of the boat sitting down in the water and you are now slowing down while you are contributing to the boat speed stopping. And then you're expected to put the blade in the water. Again, equal applying force as all other crews and get it going again. Crew two, who's also exited the water, a little bit more tempered with the hand speed away, a little bit more careful with the body going over, certainly much softer knee brake. As a result, potentially looks lazy, looks to be taking their time. Boat speed doesn't spike once they break their knees. Boat speed maintains. The boat is also been sitting in an optimal plane for longer. And then as they increase the roll into the front, they don't rush the slide, but they do subtly increase the roll into the front. By the time they get to the front, they've got less weight on their feet, less stern down, less wetted surface area. They have a greater increase of speed right before the catch so they've actually had a speed increase 
just prior to the blade going in the water. And if they're really good, they can actually pick it up feeling lighter. Now, it's pretty interesting stuff. And I, I should say, you know, when Drew has recorded this, he's in the car, I think, on the way back from a session from Karam, uh, going back a number of years. And, you know, you can tell he's passionate about it. And he's really trying to express his views on, on his particular way of rowing. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, be around while he was training here at the Institute and work with um, his coach, uh, Chris O'Brien, for a number of years there. Um, and his insight into how he was trying to make the boat go and move was, you know, first rate. It was as thoughtful as anyone we've dealt with. So this is not critiquing so much his view on it. Um, it's actually using his uh, opinions as a bit of a talking point to consider all the different things as we roll along here. Yeah, well, I mean, what he says makes logical sense, you know, pretty much straight away. But I guess what it doesn't necessarily cover is the why. So. Yeah, I mean, unless you're not really familiar with some of the physics of things going on there, you mm. might sort of think, well, okay, why, why does that occur? Yeah, and you can see there's a couple of things there that he, that he emphasises around the trim of the boat and all of this sort of stuff is really complex in terms of what, what the impact of that might be. So we want to have a bit of a chat through that as we roll through. Yeah, sounds mm. good. All right, next part. Now, I've watched for years coaches and athletes do this whole hand speed away you know, force the hands away, force the body rock over, force the knee break, and then slow down. For fear of not being set out in front. For fear of not being capable of rowing a front turn without having everything over in place and in complete control. So he's sort of describing the opposite of what his intention is there. He's talking about, um, you know, some of the descriptions that he's using on his analysis of what other people are doing um, which is in conflict to what he sees as being optimal there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it sounds, what he's describing is he's trying to avoid a negative rather than optimise a positive. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, it's a really, it's a really interesting um, view taken. And again, you can hear the passion and, mm -hmm. and actual real clarity in his mind around what he's trying to do there, which I think is one of the most important parts of it. But anyway, we'll get to that. Last part. Problem is it slows down to the front and as a result, it gets hard for people to pick the front turn but it also gets hard to row really good length um, in terms of elastic length. And then the other part is you've got to have a really good engine and be super strong to keep that going all the way down the track. And I think that becomes problematic. So fascinating part of that there is the, the talk about, uh, and he touches on this thing called elastic length mm -hmm. um, through the front turn, which we'll talk about a little bit in a moment as well in terms of what that actually means. But he's describing the, the negative impact in his view of getting out early, getting set early off the back or ahead of the natural tempo of the boat and then having to slow down coming into the catch. Yeah, exactly. And then not being able to use that natural elastic you know, ability of the body um, that you get to generate through the earlier parts of the stroke. So, but yeah, we can go into that in a bit more detail. Yeah, absolutely. Rightio, so attached with the show notes, we'll have um, a link and also on our Facebook page, which is the Bro Show podcast. Um, a couple of slides like a presentation from um, from PowerPoint which we'll, we'll refer to now so if you've got them you can listen otherwise otherwise just listen in and we'll um, we'll sort of talk our way through it I think the most important thing and again this is my view of the recovery rowing method what Drew's talking about here I think and in general what people are talking about is how they row the boat at low stroke rate not at race pace and even recently we had a look at some of the uh, drew uh, men's pairs from 2004, 2008 in the racing, and you don't see a pronounced stop at the back turn. You certainly see uh, care to row the back turn completely, but they're not stopping their hands at the back turn. So when we're talking about uh, the fast hands away method or the slow hands away method, it's really about what you're doing at stroke rates below 24 and particularly below rate 20. And part of the reason why that is important is that you know, clearly at a low stroke rate, um, you need to use the extra time that's generated on the recovery to do something. And, and part of that, you know, quite simply is, and you'll see on, the, on page one of the presentation, we've talked about the drive ratios at stroke rates. So if you look down the, the bottom highlighted section, it's got rate 20. Um, if you're rating uh, 20 strokes a minute, each stroke takes about three seconds. 
A typical drive time, if you're driving a single skull along very firmly or even a pair, is going to be about 0.85 of a second. We've spoken about that before at low stroke rate, which gives you quite a lot of time, more than two seconds, to row the recovery. Now, you to actually hold the rate down at low stroke rate, you could row a normal ratio like what you'd row at rate 35 or 40, where it's pretty much one to one. At rate 20, if you rode a stroke rate of one to one, as you can see down the bottom there, your, your actual drive speed would end up being well over a second and the boat would be going very slow mm. because you'd be applying no pressure. I know this sounds really logical, but it's important to understand. So there becomes this concept of recovery over time in the recovery, um, which means the recovery becomes significantly longer the lower the stroke rate is relative to the drive ratio. The drive ratio from rate 20 changes from about 0.85 down to the low 0.7, so it changes very little, whereas the recovery ratio could much more than double. So the, the, the reason why it's important to consider how you row the recovery on at low rate is because of the recovery overdrive time. That makes sense, doesn't it? That makes a lot of sense, yeah. I mean, obviously everything's gonna be a lot more pronounced at, at the low rates and yeah, I guess what does translate up to, to race rates and what doesn't and, you know, are you focusing on something that, you know, really isn't as important at, when you get to racing? Yeah, that's right. So how do you use this extra time? That's the big question. So there's a couple of ways. Number one, you could spread it out evenly. So that's the, the total um, recovery time you could spread even, that extra recovery time that you've got. Uh, the second way would be the fast hands away method, which is, I suppose, the method that Drew's advocating he doesn't like, which is getting the hands away early, um, or getting the hands away at normal pace and then taking a lot of time coming forward into the, into the um, catch. And then there is the slow hands away method, which is to take extra time at the, at the finish of the stroke and the early part of the recovery and then allow yourself to roll at normal speed, call it, into the front turn through the catch. That makes sense? Yep, makes perfect sense. Very good. So a couple of things that are important to consider when we talk about this, and this is referring to page two. Many coaches believe that the impulse or the rate of force development of the stroke, that is the first part of the drive, is the most critical part of the propulsive section of the stroke. So that you know, translates quite often to from the catch to the peak force. It's generally accepted by a lot of biomechanists and a lot of senior coaches that that part of the stroke is what separates people that are very good and great and people that are average and very good in rowing. Yeah, and exactly to that point, there was a, a published paper just earlier this year that showed pretty much exactly that, where they compared national versus international rowers, um, mm. and they had them rowing at 32 strokes per minute, and the rate of force development was a lot faster in the international crews. Yeah, and it, you see that really clearly when you look at biomechanics. So that that almost has to be put aside as being a characteristic of uh, athletes that are high performing are able to have a higher uh, impulse a higher rate of first force development early in the in the stroke the second point is many coaches rec rec recognize that skills late in the recovery uh, are key to moving directly and effectively into the impulse. That is to say, and this is quite natural, what happens immediately before the impulse is very important to make sure the impulse works. And that's really obvious, I think. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I mean, just those skills to be set up, as you know, you hear co coaches often refer to setting up, um, yeah, obviously quite important to getting that initial impulse right. That's right. Combined with that, Many coaches also recognise that great skills late in the recovery are important because it's at that point of the stroke that the boat goes from its intrastroke maximum speed to its intrastroke minimum speed. And we'll talk about that on a slide in a moment. But it is from about sort of half to three quarter recovery to the catch where the boat goes from its highest velocity to its lowest velocity within the stroke cycle. So it's a really critical point, and I think a lot of coaches recognise that great skills at that point is also really important for that reason. Yeah, correct. I mean, you can do quite a lot to disturb the speed of the boat at that point in time. And the final part that I think is worth considering, and this goes back to Drew's point around the use of elastic length, was his terminology. 
Um, and probably the, the sort of scientific or the strength and conditioning terminology for that would be the stretch shortening cycle of the muscles. A lot of coaches, particularly top end coaches, will try and teach their crews to use the stretch shortening cycle to their advantage. So very simply, the stretch shortening cycle is, is explained that the muscles can produce a certain amount of force um, in a concentric contraction, but they can produce more force if they are preloaded essentially on stretch immediately before that concentric contraction. Yeah, and I mean, the best way that I've heard it explained before is you get one of those like slinky little springs. You know, if you push it down, it's gonna spring back up for you. So you're utilizing that elastic energy. Correct. And anyone can very simply test this out. You can do a uh, squat, squat down into a low squat position and try and do a jump squat and see how high you can touch the wall and then stand on a chair, jump off the chair, down and bounce back up, and you'll always jump higher the second way. And that is utilizing the stretch shortening cycle of the muscle. Yeah, great example, yeah. And so what Drew is talking about in terms of elastic length is a, is a concept, particularly with elite athletes who are skilled, and particularly in crew boats that can really hone their movement together. They can actually use that to their advantage in terms of arriving and picking up the boat and generating more force in the impulse, which doesn't actually cost them as much muscular energy because it's utilizing the elastic energy of the muscle. Yeah, exactly. Great, so those concepts in place, we'll flick over to page three, which is a representation of a um, boat acceleration and force and velocity curve. So I've used, rather than actually using a real life example, I've kind of taken some information and put it together to make it a little bit more easy to read. You can see, um, there's, there's quite a bit on this page. You can see at the top, I've got some basic sequences in line. I've also got some names along the bottom there for parts of the stroke. But if we look at first at the blue line, which is the power curve, you can see that at the catch, the power goes up. So the catch and then into the impulse, the power goes up to its maximum point, which is essentially the end of the impulse, as we discussed. Then through the mid drive, it's sort of tapering off a little bit and it drops then towards the finish. And then there's zero force, essentially, all the way forward on the recovery. And that force is the force in the direction of the propulsion of the boat. Yep. All right, so it should be said, these three lines are all, uh, related to one another, they're all factors of each other. So they're, they're all intricately related. So naturally, if you're applying force and you assume that you've got complete efficiency of blades and all of that sort of stuff, the boat's gonna accelerate as soon as you apply force. So the, you can see the, the red line initially picks up and then drops down and then picks up again. That's really typical. There's always an initial acceleration when the, when the catch is taken. There's a lot of different uh, opinions on exactly why that happens and we might talk about that in another episode, but that's typically what you see. But then you can see the boat accelerates through the impulse. Once the peak force is reached, the boat stops accelerating as quickly but one thing that is really important to note with the red line is that even though from the mid drive to the finish, the red line is dropping down, the boat is still accelerating. It's still in positive acceleration at that point. Some people look at that and think, oh, why is the boat slowing down then? Well, it's not slowing down. It's actually just not accelerating as quickly as it was a moment beforehand. Yeah, it's not until it dips below zero that it's actually now starting to decelerate. That's right. And I think, you know, acceleration is the rate of change of velocity and we've sort of done a bit of research and we've, cause I sort of posed the question, well, what is actually the rate of change of acceleration? And believe it or not, the term for that is a jerk. So <laughs> according to the American Journal of Physics, the rate of change of acceleration has been called a jerk and is important in certain applications of mechanics and acoustics. And it is probably important here. So as the red line's dropping, the boat is actually still getting faster and faster and faster and faster. It's not slowing down until it drops below the zero line. And you'll see that the acceleration drops below the zero line just at the finish. There's an initial um, deceleration as the blades are coming out of the water typically. Ideally, that there, there wouldn't be. And great crews have a lot less deceleration there, a lot less red line under the black line, but you typically do see it. And then through the recovery, the boat then continues in positive acceleration through to just before um, the catch is taken, you can see then drops back down again. Hmm. All that makes sense? 
makes sense. And yeah, I mean, you can see there that yeah, right there is where, when you're looking at the green line, the speed is the absolute fastest, and then it obviously starts to plummet pretty quickly from there. Exactly, and you can see the green speed, velocity, whatever you want to call it, is just a function of the red line. So where the red line is above the zero line, the green line is getting um, is increasing. The velocity is going up. It dips a little bit just at the finish as it drops into zero and then it continues to roll on and you can clearly see, as you said, that the highest point of velocity within the stroke is what, at the section that I've called the, the end of the glide and the start of the draw. And that's probably the, the glide into the draw, to me, is the point where you start thinking about the stretch shortening cycle. Mm. Makes sense? Makes sense, mate. Perfect. So we'll flick over to the next page and we're going to talk first about the pros and cons of the fast hand away method. So, and this is by no means definitive, but it's definitely worth sort of walking our way through. So as I see it, the fast hands away method, that is, you assume the drive is exactly the same, but from the moment you take the blade out of the water, you're trying to move the hands away, if you like, quicker than natural, or quicker than the boat's naturally going, setting yourself forward and then taking time, then actually slowing down and trying to um, you know, eat up some of that recovery over time in the mid-recovery and the late recovery. Right, okay, and so what is a potential pro of doing it that way? All right, so the first thing is, and I think this is a main reason why coaches like this method, is that it's a lot more simple to get a group of athletes in a crew to get set up for the next stroke if they are if their intent is to get out more directly so the thought is if if the mindset is get the hands away get the bodies over long early get that happening quickly that they'll be set and there's less chance they'll arrive for the next catch without being completely set right so again thinking about that avoiding a negative consequence potentially exactly. yeah that's exactly right um and I think there's some, some truth to that. You know, there's no doubt that that works really effectively for a number of crews around. And it, it does make logical sense. It, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Get it done, get organized early, and then take time to soak up some boat run as you come forward. Uh, the other part, the other thing that obviously does happen when you do that is that initial acceleration out of the back will be higher. So you'll, you'll gain some boat velocity early in the recovery um, because you're getting, you're essentially setting some of your body weight uh, towards the stern, which actually sucks the boat underneath you towards the bow or towards the finish line uh, early in the recovery. So the boat will actually gain velocity early in the recovery. Mm. Yeah, and I think when we were talking about this the other day, I told you I was looking at the men's quad, I think it was last year, and they were just practicing almost, I mean, they were kind of practicing starts without actually doing a start. So they were more just practicing at catches, so to speak. And the amount that the boat moved just from drawing into that position was actually stunning when you had four guys in the boat, big sort of heavy, strong guys. That the boat just you know, jumps forward without them actually you know, propelling it at all. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think it's a really important and interesting thing to consider that, um, as Drew said at the very start, you can make the boat go faster when the blades are not in the water mm. and and that's exactly right like you do you can do a roll up um, anyone can go and practice it someone with really good skills will move the boat half a meter you know maybe even a meter if they're really really good and people with less skills the boat might only move positively a little bit or maybe even negatively if they're really <laughs> <Yeah>. bad <laughs> so some there's some school of thought around if you accelerate the boat quickly early and then if you don't decelerate the boat well you get the advantage that the boat's at a higher velocity for longer during the stroke cycle so in theory you do all of your acceleration as early as possible within the stroke and then sit at, at neutral acceleration all the way through to the finish so the boat would be at highest velocity straight away and hold that high velocity the whole way through the stroke it would then give you an, have a, a higher average velocity for for the stroke well, for that part of the stroke, yeah. That's right. So I think it's easy to get sort of um, sucked into that uh, mindset, but, but that's definitely a, a thought around why an, a fast hands away method might work. But as Drew said, there's a cost to it. Yes. <laughs> so what's the cost? Well, we'll get to that in a second, but the cost clearly is that you, you still have to take time somewhere. You have to soak up the time 
to hold the rate down at the rate you're trying to hold it at. So once you do that, it becomes, once you've created a higher velocity um, out of the back turn, you then have to drop unnaturally almost below that velocity coming into the catch or at some point for the rest of the recovery in right. order to stretch the time out to keep the rate down. Like exactly, that. yeah. And that's the cost. And there's, I suppose what we'll talk about is what is that actually setting up for racing? Yeah, and I, and I guess Drew covers this pretty well in, in certain parts. It's, you know, why is that a cost? What are the potential negatives of that part? Mm. Um, of, of the phase you know that can potentially get you unstuck yeah it's it's a really interesting um, dis- discussion point because again it's about setting up all of the paddling is about setting up a, um, a movement that's going to translate as well as possible into race speed stuff I suppose one thing that I haven't actually added into the pros of it which I think is an actual important part and it's related to what we just spoke about is that the fast hands away method does actually train you to row the hands around the back turn closer to the speed you're going to row them at when you're up at race rate. Yeah. So you're actually practicing that skill of getting the hands away and moving the hands quickly out of the back turn. And as I said, my perception is that crews that um, row train with the slow hands away method don't end up racing with slow hands away. They might race, race with measured hands away, but they're certainly not slow. Right, exactly. So, so you're practicing, in the fast hands away method, you're practicing the hand speed at the back turn that you're gonna, or closer to it, that you're gonna actually race at. So the final part of it is, in terms of the pros is, I think there's a perception that the boat trim uh, is better when you get the weight out of the bow earlier. So if you like, um, Rod, the center of mass of the boat is roughly in a pair is between the two riggers. So when the rowers are at the back turn and leaning their bodies towards the bow ball, the bow of the boat is gonna trim down and into the water. And from the outside, that looks inefficient, undoubtedly. Um, And there would be a perception, it'd be an easy perception to try and think, we wanna get the bow out, we wanna get the boat trimming up so there's less water sitting down in the boat, there's less wetted surface area and all of that sort of thing. Yeah. The challenge is that what does that actually look like at race speed? And what we traditionally find is almost all boats tend to trim a lot further down in the stern the higher the rate gets. And you know, and this is again something that, you know, an anecdote from watching Drew and, um, and James and Duncan row their pairs for a number of years, where they would paddle with their boat, with their bow a long way down in the water, understanding that the, the trim would come up to flat when they were actually at race speed. So some of the trim of the boat stuff of trying to get the hands out of the back, I think is actually maybe just a perception rather than an actual reality of speed. Yeah, I guess it's sort of, gets to the point of you know do you want to make calls on the way you're going to row your boat based on something at really low rates really low intensities versus what is actually going to happen in a race and at race speed race intensity race stroke rate correct it can get obviously quite dangerous you're making important decisions that potentially can be entirely unrelated yeah that's right exactly um, but we spend most of our time paddling. Mm. So, you know, it's easy to want to make, to set the boat up so that they're comfortable at paddle speed and all of those sort of things. And that, you know, it looks right at paddle speed, but is that actually what they need to be doing in terms of setting mm. themselves up for the, for the 2K race? So I guess that's the, um, the potential cost of getting the trim looking better at, at mm. uh, low paddle rate. So in terms of the cons, you know, I suppose the first one that we've sort of covered there is the rowers have to actively slow themselves on the slide at some point. So if they get away quickly, then there has to be a point during the mid recovery to the late recovery where they actually have to essentially put the brakes on. And that's obviously going to be a negative energy into the stern of the boat pushing back towards the start line, not towards the finish line. Mm. And we sort of mentioned there in the slides as well that that does happen at a at a important critical part of the recovery where you're arriving to the point where you're about to drop from high speed to lower speed so the boat becomes very fragile very quickly at that point yeah and i guess so the question would be if you're moving that much faster forward what is the is the impact on boat speed 
in that situation? What yeah. could you be doing to the boat? Yeah, exactly. And, th and that's what you've got to think about and consider when you're, when you're looking at that sort of method. Um, I think the net, and we've sort of covered that one, I think, I think a fair bit in terms of the, the potential con of doing that. The next one is obviously there's a limited ability to use the stretch shortening cycle through the front turn for power production. And I think, I think that's a really underestimated thing in terms of particularly the elite end of rowing. I know that a lot of um, you know, Olympic level coaches will talk to their athletes a lot about drawing the heels and almost drawing the boat actively into that last part of the catch. What is required to do that is obviously amazing timing skills of getting the blade into the water and connected exactly when you're changing the power direction. So it obviously requires a high skill efficiency. Uh, but clearly, if you are slowing yourself coming in, it's like doing that squat where you're basically stationary at the bottom. You're not going to jump as high. Mm, yep. So, you, yeah, you, you sort of limit that ability to really use the stretch shortening cycle power that is yeah quite natural for the body. And as you said before, it essentially comes at very little cost. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost, it's almost like free a little bit of free energy yeah the next one rod was was a point that you raised which i thought was really interesting yeah well i guess in talking all this through and, and sort of thinking about it and trying to visualize it as we were going through it the thing that seems quite obvious to me is the what you end up getting with the fast away uh, hands away method is because you're as you said before putting the brakes on and you know quite quickly slowing down so to speak um, and as Drew sort of talks about it, your, you know, your weight is over your toes, you're coming forward. What's that going to do to the minimum speed of, mm. of the boat? So um, obviously getting a, attaining a high maximum speed theoretically sounds quite important. But if your minimum speed per stroke ends up being lower, is that, does that sort of negate and then it maybe even then some mm. the potential positives of getting a slightly higher maximum speed? Yeah. And there's not a clear answer to that, but clearly one of the things that top coaches work on is, you know, those that have the advantage of looking at GPS information is to try and keep the minimum speed of each stroke as low as possible. So if they're looking at making a shift, that's one of, you know, in terms of the way they're rowing a rhythm or something, that's one of the metrics I'll definitely look at is the intra-stroke minimum speed trying to be as high as possible. There's got to be some impact on inertia there. So if you essentially almost stop the boat, you have to overcome a lot of inertia and resistance against the water that, um, you know, a lot of these sort of things become less of an impact if um, the boat is sitting higher in the water because you're, you're not allowing it to drop as far, I think. Mm. And I mean, the most obvious example to that would be in a 2K race, at the start from stationary to, get to moving the boat forward, you have the highest power, mm. what we've measured you know, from any of the systems that we've used, you've always got the highest power at the very start of the race yeah. in conjunction with the lowest speed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if the boat is obviously, the, the, the slower the boat is going, the more power is required to attain the same speed. Yeah. And I guess, you know, we didn't play it in this one, but if you listen to all of Drew's chat, at one point he, he sort of says, you know, for a little while, you've got two boats doing the exact same thing. They're producing the same amount of power within the stroke. At one point, somebody's going to start pulling away. You may be at the 500, you know, 1,000, 1,500, and so on. Somebody's going to start pulling away. And I guess that's the reason why. So if you are producing the exact same amount of power, but as you're picking the boat up, it's at a slightly lower speed, you're going to go slower. Yeah. So for you to increase the speed back to the exact same speed as you know, the crew sitting beside you in the example, you're going to have to produce more power because you're starting from a slower speed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and that's where you obviously get inefficiencies in terms of you know, physiologically. For you to go the exact same speed as the other crew, you need to produce more power, which is, if you can do it, great, but if you can't, yeah. <laughs> you're in trouble. That's right, yeah. So... The fast hands away method has its advantages and I think one truism of rowing is that the only thing that's important really is that everyone does the same thing. So I'm, I'm certainly not advocating one way or another necessarily here, although I do, I do have a method that I coach towards, which I'll, we'll talk about at the end. But I think uniformity within the crew is the most important things, but it's important to understand that for everything, as Drew says very well, makes the point, there's a cost for it. 
Mm. And it's sometimes it's about trying to minimise the negatives rather than maximise the positives. Mm. So page five is just a very simple um, uh, attempt at explaining um, the impact of what we've just discussed on the acceleration and the velocity of the boat. So you can see the yellow line there is just an example of the handle speed. Uh, towards the body is negative and away from the body is positive. So the fast hands away method, you can see that from the finish, the hands, ex uh, hands move away quite quickly. The acceleration jumps up, as does the, the boat velocity, but the acceleration uh, tips into negative acceleration early in the recovery when you're not using the inverted commas draw. So it's negatively accelerating towards um, earlier in the recovery and dropping the velocity earlier in the late recovery. Sound good? Makes sense. Perfect. All right, we'll move on to number six, which is the slow hands away method. And there's a little bit more guff on here, partly because we've got a bit more to talk about in terms of reference to Drew's uh, discussion. But in terms of the positives, um, the positive impact on the, on the impulse of the stroke because a couple of things. Number one, regular practicing the tempo of the catch is more aligned with the race tempo. So that is to say that by taking time at the back turn and allowing you the opportunity then to roll into the catch and take the catch more like the speed of race um, tempo, you're actually practicing that skill more and more frequently every day. And I think that's a really important part. If we accept that a lot of people believe that the front part of the stroke is the biggest separator between great and good, you're practicing that part more closely aligned to the race tempo and the skills and speed of contractions and all of those sort of things in every stroke uh, if you're using the slow hands away method, which is in brackets, the fast catch method. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, that's, obviously sort of the exact opposite of the fast hands away method where you're practicing race tempo at, as you're getting the hands away early versus you know, then slowing down at the other end. That's right. The other positive on the impulse of the stroke is that you have the opportunity, if you have the skills, to use the natural stretch shortening cycle of the muscles to get that, in inverted commas, cheap or free power. So if you can allow yourself to um, skillfully draw and catch the boat without um, mistiming, you might be able to utilize that elastic energy, as Drew says. Yeah, and then, yeah, the, I mean, the outcome from that then is faster rate of force development and all, you know, all the positive things that come from there. Higher impulse, and then actually what's potentially likely is that you might get higher acceleration early in the drive phase. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, again, that's, you know, something in that paper I mentioned earlier is that they found that, again, the, the more internationally successful rowers versus their national counterparts spent a decreased amount of time in the first half of the drive phase. Yeah, right. So if you've got more, um, you know, more of that free energy to be able to pick up the impulse quicker, you're going to get through that first part of the drive faster. Yeah, which is really important, obviously. So the next pro that we've identified there is that the boat continues to accelerate late into the, into the recovery phase, which reduces that intrastroke minimum speed, which is what you discussed earlier. Yeah, and again, like the more we talk about this, I, I feel like at least from the physiological point of view, that seems to be really important. Mm. Um, you know, the slower the boat is at, at a point in time, the more power is required to get it back up to that speed again. That's right, yeah. So. The high might be high, but having a low low has a bigger cost. Yeah, I, I believe it probably does. It'd be interesting to investigate. That might be a honours project at some mm. stage for you. Um, the other part of the slow hands away method, which I think is interesting to talk about, is that, and, and I think this is in the mind of a lot of coaches. I remember Nick Garrett, who is um, a coach from, he's now at Actas, but he was in New, in New South Wales at Mossman for a long time. I remember him talking once about the ability to take, you know, 0.1 of a second at the back turn to allow the elastic energy of the blade to come back. So we know that, and people will visually know this from watching the boats in still photos and that sort of stuff. When you take the catch and apply force, there is some bend in the oar, mm. there's some bend in the shaft. Now, that bend has got to come back at some point in time. If you take the blade out really quickly before the bend has come back, you may be foregoing some of the elastic energy that you've already invested into it. 
If you are taking a little bit more time at the back turn, a little bit more care to keep the blade in the water there, you might get that elastic energy back, which is essentially not losing the investment you've already made. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. It's something that you know, I probably wouldn't have thought of really. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you do. You obviously see that you know very slight bend in the oar, especially mm. when you're going really fast, uh, and more power, more force is being applied. But yeah, I mean, naturally you would get some elastic energy being returned into the system. Yeah, you do. And I, I think it, it's a coaching point that we talk about a lot. Like we we often talk about bend and hold. Uh, Peter Antony, you know, Olympic gold medalist from 92 from Melbourne down here, you'll often hear him talking about that sort of thing, like bend the oar and, and work on just holding that bend and then letting the bend come back a little bit mm. in the back turn. I think it's a really important point. Yeah, absolutely. So there's some of the pros of the slow hand away method and, and, in, and important ones. I think hopefully that sums up some of what Drew was saying. You know, you, you practice um, that the tempo and the skill and the muscle um, firing sequence more closely aligned with race speed every day, every stroke. If you take time at the back so you don't have to take time at the catch, you can use the stretch shortening cycle to your advantage. The boat will have will likely have a lower minimum speed within a stroke. It might also have a lower maximum speed potentially, but that might be more efficient. And also there's the opportunity to get the elastic return from the blade or from the oar as well. Right, so then that begs the question, what are the potential cons? Because everything comes at a cost. And I think that's really important. So there is potentially a greater likelihood that rowers will arrive uh, in different positions or at different times with, with a later setup. So if you don't have that intention to get the hands out, get the body over in order really quickly together, there is the potential that people might lazily come forward, not quite set up as well as they um, otherwise would, and arrive into the catch, into the draw part, with, with work left to do to get organized to take the catch. Right, and I mean, I guess intuitively, that becomes more and more of an issue when you've got crew boats. Absolutely, so sculler, and, and you quite often see this with scholars, they can be a little inverted commas you know, lazier with their sequences because they know exactly how to time their seat and hands to take the catch. But in a crew, it's very, you know, predictability is really vital. So getting organized early is really critical. So potentially slowing the hands down through the back turn might actually mean that people aren't getting out as organized as they otherwise would if their intention was to get straight out and organized mm. in order. I would say there's probably a different school of thought to that as well in that if you take more time you can be more deliberate about getting set up in order together um, but again that's about having the right intention that the athletes really are, are disciplined to make sure they do get set mm. in order so the next the next con there is if it's mistimed if that um, the slow hands at the back, fast catch is mistimed. So bow seat arrives before stroke seat and and tries to roll and pick while stroke seat is still trying to draw. There's the potential that there could be a more dramatic negative force on the boat there if the timing isn't very, very good. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And then you're, yeah, you're obviously creating even greater minimum speed. That's right, exactly. Or lower minimum speed. So. The final point there is, and, and I think this is a really important one around, we'll talk a bit a second about mimicking. The crews may struggle to free their hands up for the back turn at race speed if they're practicing taking a lot of time at the back all the time. And I think that's one of the really important reasons why we thought we'd have a chat about this today is that it's very easy to look at crews who take a lot of time at the back and just copy that and think that taking time at the back is the way of making the boat go faster. But I, I believe that actually, whilst there is some benefits in terms of maybe getting the elastic uh, energy from the blade back and all that sort of stuff, the reason for taking time at the back is so you don't have to take time at the catch. So if you don't have that in the forefront of your mind when you're doing it, and you think taking time at the back is the reason the boat's going faster, you, you might find that you really struggle to get the stroke rate up when you're trying to get up into uh, a ratio, a rate where the ratio is more one-to-one. -one. Yeah, well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess you need to know exactly why you're doing it. And if you're not clear, then yeah, you might not be getting the real impact of what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, and there's, there is, you know, mimicking um, 
a movement without actually understanding the intention is is really dangerous i think so i think you know if people are going to experiment with that sort of thing they need to understand um you know why they're trying to do it and make up their own mind and one of the interesting things that you hear a lot of people talk about and i know drew said this to me that he he had a chat with um eric murray from the kiwi pair at one stage that um and he relayed the the sort of concept that they'd actually gone out and they'd done both they'd rode with you know essentially almost doing checks at the back turn and then really rolling and picking and they'd rode with a spread out rhythm and then they'd, they'd rode with an early setup sort of rhythm fast hands away rhythm and they'd found actually that even doing hand checks at the back turn at paddle gave them the highest boat speed but it probably wasn't the fact that they were stopping at the back turn my suggestion would be was that they didn't stop at the catch or that they were really drawing and picking the boat through the front turn that made them fast yeah, and I, get, I mean, I'll ask you a question. So what, we spoke about this briefly the other day, but what's the effect of when you're moving forward, mm-hmm. either letting, sort of letting that draw happen naturally with the run of the boat versus, I guess, doing it either faster or slower? So, yeah, can you sort of talk to that a little bit? Yeah, I suppose it's, it's not just about what's happening at that point in time. So... I suppose in theory, and it'd be interesting to get a biomechanist's view on this, but I guess ultimately the best thing at every instant of the recovery would be that you'd be moving with the speed of the boat, naturally with the speed of the boat, which as we've seen gets faster and then gets a little slower as you're coming in. But a big reason for actually potentially drawing a little bit into the catch is to try and almost artificially keep the speed up a little bit there and activate that stretch shortening cycle at the catch, which I do think is a really critical mm-hmm. thing. So what it's not just about what's happening right now. It's about, it's actually in a lot of times in rowing, it's about what you're setting up to happen immediately yes. afterwards. And we use that analogy a lot. We always say, if you've got a problem at the catch, what's happening half or a quarter of a stroke beforehand? Mm-hmm. Because it's usually the problem is often there. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So that's the slow hands away method. And you know, on the final page of the slides there, you know, you've got a bit of a, a brief description about how that is impacted. So you can see the yellow line as it, as it crosses down past the finish and the setup, it lags a little bit, it's, it's quite slow there. And then there's that little bit of almost scoop up into the catch. You can see the boat gets in positive acceleration out of the back turn, but doesn't accelerate um, as much as dramatically. And then it picks up acceleration late into the catch and the velocity continues out towards the next, um, the next catch. Very good. So it's a little bit of a, um, it's a little bit of a, a skim through some of this stuff. I, I reckon I would really recommend that everyone had a listen to Drewy's um, 15 minute Will it make the boat go faster? And there's also a podcast he did with, uh, I think it's Leo Sport. I'll have to, I'll reference that in the um, in the material as well. That he where he talks in more depth about it, and that's really fascinating to get a, an amazing top end athlete's opinion on what on what actually happens there. Um, and we certainly thank Drew for putting it out there. I think you know it's brilliant to hear an athlete like passionately describing what they're feeling and, and even sort of alluding to some of their frustrations. It's brilliant to actually get that insight into the, the mind of a brilliant athlete. Um, but it is important, I think, that you, you never just mimic or copy someone else's concept. It's really important that you try and understand what's happening. And I think sometimes when, you, when I hear people say, oh, you know, we've, we've done GPS testing and we know it's faster rowing the hands and stopping the hands at the back turn and that sort of thing, and, and you'll hear that thrown out from time to time, that's probably true at low speed, at low stroke rate. But what you're trying to actually set up is a movement into the front turn that's going to be more effective at race speed. And I think that's the point of the slow hands away method. Yeah. So you said earlier that you've got your method that you try to coach towards. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of of my philosophy, it would be much more closely aligned to the slow hands away method, I I would say. I'm not a big believer in sort of what I would call the throwing hands away uh, concept and initially that's because I learned to row from the same people who coached Drew so we we sort of uh, you know I was a few years behind him but I got taught the same way so it fits my natural bias in terms of the way I, I feel like the boat should be rowed but 
my intention in terms of taking time at the back turn was always so that we didn't take time at the over the toes that was always the intention mm-hmm. so when i'm coaching athletes we don't talk about stopping at the back turn we talk about trying to drive the boat during the drive and take time with the hands past the short so that they're steady through there and we tr- we talk about trying to roll and pick at the catch we try mm-hmm. and roll and pick draw and pick and i know in both um you know say recently with some of the boats we've been working with here that's been a big theme but i also know leading into the olympics with the girls in the pair that was a big part the roll and pick that was what it was all about through the front turn but i did reflect on this as well one of the interesting things that the girls always said at race speed one of their big calls was to keep the hands loopy and that in their minds i think was the was the change from taking time at the back turn at rate 20 into being able to be super continuous at 37 was keep the hands loopy through the back turn when they got up to stroke rate. So there you can see great athletes going, I know what the difference is. Mm. When we go to race speed, we're used to doing the front turn. We know how to do that. That's how we do it all the time. It doesn't change much. The force is just a bit higher, but the back turn has to change. We have to now loop with the hands through the back turn. Mm. Yeah, really interesting to get that, you know, that in- insight from the some of the best athletes. Yeah, and it wasn't like they were describing, they weren't describing in that context. They, that was just where they got to. It mm. worked when they talked about loopy hands, but that's exactly what they're doing. They're going, we have to free the hands up because that's what we don't do at low rate. Mm. And yeah, again, that, that's sort of where that danger is. If you don't know why you're doing it, you might end up not doing it correctly in the end at, when you're getting to the race speeds and rates. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think you know, even some of those years with the men's four, say leading into London overseas when they were in the big training blocks and they were their maximum stroke rate they might have been doing at times was like rate 24 and they were taking a lot of time at the back turn I remember seeing them when they do their first sort of sets of thousand meter pieces or hit training or whatever and it would look a little awkward at the back turn for the first couple of sessions it would look really stilted as they figured out how to free their hands up again so and that's a there's a silver medal crew and it, it takes time. You've got to mm. figure it out. So it's like if you isolate something, you've got to make a plan to reintegrate it. We've said that before mm. in some other areas. So having that intention is really critical. Like we're taking time here now because we have to so that we don't have to take time at the catch. But when we race, it's got to be continuous. Mm. Makes sense to me. Makes a lot of sense. So covered a bit of ground there today um hopefully everyone's been able to follow by going through the sheets we'll make sure that they're available again thanks to drew you know for putting it out there in the first place i think it's fascinating discussion and we'd be really interested to hear people's thoughts or counter thoughts to that sort of thing um also it's great um to reference some of those um studies that have been done and we'll put some links to that as well um but otherwise roddy we'll uh catch up soon for our next thing right have we have we solved rowing or are we going to have to do some more of these? No, we'll have to do a couple more. Yeah, so probably haven't solved it quite yet. Get in there. <laughs>